this morning, Topher and a couple of the guys were not in the warmth of this worship center uh, leading worship. They were on the front steps of Fondren Church right out here in the freezing cold, sub-freezing temperature, playing music for all the runners, the thousands of runners with the Mississippi Blues Marathon. Isn't that great? And at 6 a.m., Topher texts me a text to a senior pastor that said, what have you gotten me into? So let's begin the year praying for Topher and his grumbling spirit, right? The key to getting somebody to do what you want is ask them months in advance. Do you know that secret? I, I, sometimes somebody asks me something in August, yeah, yeah, and then August rolls around. We'd love for you to turn to Ephesians chapter 3. We're not going to put it on the screen just yet. We will in a moment. We're going to hone in on this great passage, one of the great prayers, um, I believe, in all the Bible. Prayer, what does the word conjure up? It's one of the most basic. I, I was reading the, the often cited truth that there are no atheists in foxholes. You, you get that, don't you? That everybody prays. I was at a prep JA basketball game last night, and they were blurting out Bon Jovi, whoa, we're halfway there. We're living on a prayer. What, what does the word conjure up for you? Uh, I think in many ways, as I said at the beginning, in the middle of that worship set, it conjures up some guilt, doesn't it? And I think another word that we can associate with prayer is risky. Maybe you haven't thought about this, but prayer at its very least is risky. What do, what do I mean by that? Uh, when you pray, you risk wasting your time. You risk being disappointed. You, you risk not getting an answer. And some of us in here, we want that answer to prayer that we're not getting for a marriage to be uh, put back in place, for a child who is far from God to, to be brought home. Uh, for uh, chronic worry or sadness, for us to be delivered from that, to be healed in body or spirit, to, to find real meaning and direction in life or in a specific area. And Paul gives us what I believe is the, not just an idea, but it's a conviction. And hear me on this, if you will. Simple idea, but I think important. He gives us a conviction from Ephesians 3 that we're going to read in a moment that I think is he has it steely resolved with his conviction. But it is, I believe, what separates us. As I, as I studied it this week, I believe it's what separates him from me in some ways. And, and, and those who pray, those who have a vibrancy in their prayer life, those who are seeking God with those that prayer is like a spare tire. It's an afterthought. It's not really important. And he gives in this one of the great prayers of the Bible a single phrase that I want us to point out, but let's read the whole passage, Ephesians 3, verses 14 to 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. Don't you love this? What is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth? And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. What a great phrase, by the way. Let me stop you. To know something, he's saying, what, what an irony, to know something that you can't even know. It's, you know it, but it's, it's just unknowable. 
that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. To him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all the generations forever and ever. Amen. Leave that up if you will. And the phrase, the beautiful phrase that is Paul's conviction that I think separates those who are vibrantly seeking God and those for whom prayer is just an uphill struggle is the phrase, now to him who is able. Now to him who is able. Our God is able. Your God is able. No problem can stop him. No obstacle can thwart him. No circumstance can worry him. No outcome can surprise him. I know, I know, I know, I know. I know what you're saying. I know what some of you are thinking and you're feeling in a very visceral way. But there's that unanswered prayer. There's that ache in my heart. There's that not knowing. And there's the, the, those times that I ask and I saw nothing. And what I want to do this morning is greet you with ragged edge realism. You have that and I have that. We all do, don't we? But Paul, I want to remind you or either uh, teach you this morning, wrote these beautiful words in a cell, in prison, in Rome, persecuted by the Romans, suffering, waiting to die, and he did not pray, get me out of this jail cell. But he prayed this prayer. And as I look at the sum of this great saint's life, I have the conviction. I have the conviction that Paul had this unshakable confidence in God that whether he was in the jailhouse or the penthouse, this is what he would ask God for. Years ago, a long time ago, I might add, I went to the movie theater in a little bitty Mississippi town and, and went to see a movie called The Bear. And in this movie, there, it's about a tiny little bear cub who tragically, unfortunately, loses its mother as a young cub. And the moviegoer is left to think, man, this is going to be tough. This frightened little cub, little to no survival skills, its little diminutive cute self out foraging and trying to find its way. When, gratefully, you're delighted when you see that this little bear cub is adopted by this giant, big, Kodiak daddy bear. And the little cub learns to live under the protection and care of this great, big, giant, Kodiak daddy bear. He watches him and he learns from him. He learns to grub for insects, to fish in the stream. When his back itches, he learns to just rub his back on the tree bark. And then he's separated from great big adopted giant Kodiak daddy bear. There had been a mountain lion that was tracking with him. And you're watching this movie thinking, Rutro. This, this won't end well. The music's playing in the background, and the, the, the little cub comes face to face with the mountain lion who had been tracking him and waiting on the perfect opportunity. And the little cub bear does not know what to do. What do you think he does? 
He does, you guessed it. He does what he saw his daddy do in similar situations. He got up on his hind legs and he put his little paws out and he let out a roar. But because of who he was, the roar was not a roar at all. It was a little squeak. And you're thinking breakfast, lunch, or dinner. But the mountain lion suddenly has fright on his own face and he runs away. He sleeks off into the wilderness. He is gone. And you see what the little cub could not see. His great big giant daddy Kodiak bear was behind him. And he in that moment lets out a roar that let everybody know who's in charge of the little cub then you know what the cub did not know, that the daddy bear, that cub's father, got him out of distance, but always had him within his sight. The cub didn't know that. But the dad, the father, for good reason, released this little one so that he could learn learn things on his own, and learn to trust. Now, the question I put before you, what what do we need to know? What do you need to know to really become a person who seeks after God, who, who puts your prayers before him with great expectation? What do you need to know? I think you and I need to know that phrase, Now to him who is able, our God is able. I want you to leave with that this morning. This may not be a good sermon, but it'll be a clear sermon. I want you to leave and grapple with this idea that your God is able. In the few moments that we have, I want us to to look at this scripture, to look at a few other scriptures, because the Bible, I believe, is a uniquely reliable and authoritative source to give us information about God. And the Bible tells us this God who is able, he created us. This God who is able said, let there be light. And guess what, y'all? There was light. He spoke it into being, and it was no strain on him. Science, listen to me. Science does not contradict this. Nothing in science disproves God. Science tells us that everything has a cause, and that's just what the Scripture teaches. God is a God who interacts with and he can even suspend the laws of nature. He wanted his people to cross through a body of water, and he separates that body of water so they could get to the other side. He calmed a storm on the seas just simply by saying, peace be still. When the nation of Israel needed another day to do battle, you ever need more time? Your God is able. Israel needed more time and their leader, Moses, whom we'll study this spring, Moses uh, extends his hands out to God. He stands up and reaches up and prays and God extends the day. He can do that. The The walls of Jericho fell down. A young boy named David defeated a giant named Goliath. God brings drought. God brings floods. God brings a rainbow. Our God is able to create and to control, to interact, even suspend the very laws 
of nature. And going to that same scripture, there's a, a beautiful story of a man named Naaman. And Naaman was a commander. He had a whole bunch of men. In fact, thousands of men, history tells us, were at his command. He was a, a confident guy. You know anybody like that? They, they, they're over, they're large and in charge, and a lot of people do their bidding. And Naaman was that man, that kind of guy. But one day, y'all, he noticed a spot on his skin. And he did what I feel like almost every desperate person does who has the illusion of control and then they see a spot or encounter a difficulty and they realize illusion of control. He turns to God and his way of turning to God is going to the prophet Elijah's house and this is not a Bible passage on hospitality because Elijah doesn't let him in. He begs outside of the door, let me in, I want to be healed and Elijah sends a servant out and tells him to go Dip, you, you great commander of many men, you go dip yourself in the Jordan River seven times and God will heal you. And here's this man's response, Naaman's response in 2 Kings 5. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Parfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash him them and be clean? So he turned and went away in rage. Later, by the way, this man, Naaman, puffed up with pride, dissing other people's rivers. Rivers were a big deal to them back then. Don't be dissing my river now, right? They built their lives, their, their livelihoods around these rivers, and he dissed the river that was not his own. And later, Elijah does come out to him and tells Naaman, hey, if you were given some grand assignment, some really incredible thing, you would have done it. Humble yourself. Humble yourself and obey God, and you will be healed. Our God is able. Our God is able to create and control the laws of nature. He is able to bring healing. He is able to humble people so that they will really seek him. He is able to be a God of deliverance. He delivered Daniel from the fiery furnace. He delivered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from, from the very same thing. He, he delivered um, a young Joseph from Pharaoh's prison. He delivered a young David from Saul's anger. He delivered a nation of Israel from Egyptian slavery. He delivered Esther from Haman's genocide and Elijah from, from Jezebel. He delivered Paul from a Philippian prison. Our God is able to be a deliverer, and he's able to be a provider. He provided his people with manna for 40 years. He had water come out of a dry rock. He fed one prophet with ravens and food by a brook. He took two loaves and five fishes, and he fed 5,000 with 12 basketfuls left over. Our God is a deliverer. Our God is a provider. And at this point in the sermon, you're thinking, well, Robert, that all happened in the Bible. That's a far away thing. And, and no doubt when the room this size this morning, some of you are thinking fable, myth, nursery rhyme, fairy tale, lullaby, maybe not true. 
Let me say you're welcome here with all your questions and your doubts because God knows I've had my own. We don't have authentic faith unless we go through doubt, unless we think deeply about things, unless we consider uh, different outcomes and alternatives. You believe that? And here's what I want to say to you this morning. There is a very helpful way to look at people, the men and women of the Bible. But there is a way to look at the men and the women, men and women in the Bible that is not only not helpful, it's harmful. It's easy for us to, to think of them as great superstars. Do you ever do that? Uh, you know, there are some superstars. There's Michael Jordan in basketball. There's Mozart in music. There's Steve Jobs, the late Steve Jobs in business. Now, my family and I, we were out in Los Angeles over Christmas, and both of my boys went to a, a Clippers game. I went to one, but we were several rows up. They went to one a couple of nights later, and they were on the first row. And they sat there close to Clippers coach Doc Rivers and, and Blake Griffith and Chris Paul and DeAndre Jordan, these great basketball gods, if you will. And they got to see this greatness, but I, I remind them often that the greatest of all was Michael Jordan, right? And don't be saying anything different. Don't be bringing LeBron up in here, right? I mean, I'll call the elders. We'll do church discipline right out in the parking lot, right? I mean, Jordan stood above others in basketball. You could same, say the same. Those of you cultured and refined could say that of Mozart and his uh, prowess when it comes to his musical proficiency and what he accomplished. Think of the late Steve Jobs. I just read my second book on Steve Jobs uh, over the holidays, one on simplicity and the, the Apple Corporation. And Steve Jobs, what did he do? Among many things, he made computers cool. And not only that, he, made a, he developed a product that we all went out and bought and then he would tweak it just slightly. And what would we do? We would, without complaint, go out and buy the latest model, right? We had the 4, but then we need the 4S. We have the 4S. We need the 4SI, right? We need the 5 and the 5S and the 5SI and the 6. And we would do that without complaining. These are great people, you would agree. I mean, let's just say it. In their realm of influence, in their sphere of industry, they stand apart. And it's harmful, though, when we go to the Bible and we think the same of people morally and spiritually. I believe God blesses and gives favor. Whatever favor God has for me and our church, I want that. Do you? Whatever level of set-apartness and sanctification he wants to bring in my life, I, I want to be available for him. But, y'all, we're all who we are. And we're all frail. We're all human we all need the message of God's love and grace in our lives and it's harmful when we look at the scripture and think they have something that we don't have what I'm saying to you is in the scripture accounts that I gave to you the same can be true for you if God wills it you see we're we're invited in did you have a good holiday season I'm your pastor. Come on, let me know. Just shake one way or the other so I'll know if I can pray for you or whatever. You know, did you have a good holiday season? Probably with your holidays, for many of you, you had some guests, right, to come over. And some of them brought great delight. And some of them just wouldn't leave, right? And they just wore on you. 
You're, you're thinking of some of them now, and that's what happens especially over the holidays. There, you leave them in the room, and you're like, okay, cleaning up now. And you start, you banging those dishes as loud as dishes can be banged. I mean, you're dropping hints, right? Cleaning up now. You leave the room, you're gone for an hour and a half. You come back, they're still there, right? They didn't get the hint. And what I want to say to you is you and I, before a holy God, we are not unwanted house guests. Jesus gives us an invitation in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 to 30, come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He said it primarily to religious people who were trying to work their way to God. And they were wearing themselves out through their religious stuff. God, protect us from religion, from hypocrisy and sanctimony and pious living. Let us be a broken people who quit striving and come to him. And we are not unwanted house guests. Look at before Jesus, the prophet Isaiah, put it this way in Isaiah 55. Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, who is that? You and me. You say, Robert, I'm loaded. We'll be doing the offering in a minute. But let me just say, you really are not loaded. None of us have money. Come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk. Wine, a symbol of joy to Isaiah. Milk, a symbol of strength. Without money, you can have these things. And without price, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently. In other words, he's saying what I need. Keep on listening. Do you ever do that? You ever have that problem? You listen one Sunday or you listen sometimes, but then you stop listening. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. The first two words, come everyone. Here's what I love about prayer. You're invited. You're invited. And how many of you think if you ask a couple of times and you don't see an answer, it's just time to pray for something else? In Luke 18:1, Jesus was about to teach a parable and he started the parable by being very clear. Some of you like that kind of teaching, man. Just tell me, where you're, tell me what you're going to say right at the beginning. Here's what Jesus did in Luke 18. A lot of times his parables were uh, mysterious. You had to really lean in to understand what he was saying. But he made this one simple. He told them a parable. Why? To the effect that they ought always to pray and not to lose heart. Now, i got to be honest. I'm not that kind of dad. Our kids are growing really fast. They're kind of big now. They dictate more than I'd like them to around the house. But when they were little, man, I, I, it was like one time only, right? I'm not a big disciplinarian or anything. I mean, my children aren't afraid of me. I'm a fairly decent dad, but I just like saying things one time. I, I wanted to be clear that one time. If they came back, I would just say, hey, I've already said it. I remember when Wesley, who just left the room to go to kids' church, he, he's this big, but when he was like this big, I mean, a tiny little guy and just so cute. And we were at a bookstore, and in the bookstore there was a children's section with a train section. And he was playing with that Thomas the Train, some of you are aware of. This is a long time ago for us. He was playing with this little train, and I, and I, I said what all dads say at that moment, hey, Wesley, it's time to go. And he didn't want to go. Actually, he did want to go, but he wanted to take the train. Daddy, can I have this train? No. Daddy, can I have this train? Daddy, can I have this? No. no. Daddy, can I have this train? And he did, maybe some of you have seen this beautiful psychology from a, a little guy. He turns and he puts out his lip and he pouts and he turns and I hear him say, Mommy said yes. <laughs> I'm not that kind of dad. But here's what's beautiful about the parable that Jesus taught 
in Luke 18.1. What he said at the outset is the parable that he teaches. It's a plucky, persistent widow who just keeps coming to, to a judge, not a righteous judge. But he keeps coming, she keeps coming to the judge, and, and God uses that. Jesus uses that as a teaching illustration to tell us to keep on praying. And maybe that's worth the trip this morning for some of you to say, to hear God say to you this morning, do not lose heart. Keep on praying. You are not an unwelcome house guest, and you cannot wear him out with your persistence. Your God is able. Now, not too long ago, a few years ago, I had reached a sort of a stalemate, an impasse in my life spiritually. I had prayed for something. I wanted something. I was not receiving that answer. I felt like the heavens had closed on me. Can I just tell you that? And you know what I did? I, I just kind of stopped praying. Now, I still publicly prayed because some of you would call on me to pray. I had to pray at small group. I had to pray at meals. I had to pray in, at church. I had to pray in front of my wife. A couple of people called me to pray over their business, to dedicate their business, to stand on a business and pray a prayer. Those businesses closed, okay? So you don't want me coming to pray for you. That's just where I was. And, and I called a friend. I called a friend, and I thought he would be more helpful, more compassionate. Compassion is not his gift, but wisdom is. And he said, Robert, this is really going to test your joyful confidence in God. And this morning I ask you, what is it that is testing your joyful confidence in God? Your God is able to forgive you. Familiar to a lot of us, I'll say it quickly, I'll hit the highlights in about a minute. But David was one of those great kings, poet, warrior, dancer, danced in his underwear. We won't do that at church today. But a great, a great man, a man later that God would say he's a man after my own heart, but David sinned greatly. Uh, we've heard this story. Gary, a couple years ago, preached a, a great sermon about it that I still remember. And David uh, one day chose laziness. He was a king, and the kings were going to battle, but David said, I'm just going to stay at the crib. And David didn't just stay at the crib. Laziness, by the way, is a gateway to other sins. Do you know this? David stayed at the crib, a nice crib, but he looked over the fence to where uh, there lived a man who was one of his key generals. And he looked over at his general's house, Uriah, and he noticed Uriah's wife and he found her to be lovely in form and he watched her bathe and he uh, long story short committed adultery with her and then that sin he committed a cover-up uh, they had a child she she became pregnant and gave birth to that child and what did David do David had Uriah murdered laziness lust lying adultery murder Let's get a show of hands. Can anybody top that in here this morning? Just raise your hand if you can top. If you can trump David, just raise your hand. Now listen, I'm going to have to turn you in, okay? If you raise your hand, I got, I'm required by law to turn you in. But God forgives David. He offers him forgiveness. Our God is able to forgive even the one who feels beat up, left out, marginalized. Tomorrow night, no one in SEC land cares anymore, but there's going to be a national championship game. Y'all don't care, right? Nobody's watching the game. We're going to have some guys come up here in one of our new rooms and put it on the flat screen and watch 
the SEC play for nobody. The Ducks and the Bucks are playing, right? And nobody cares. But in 1982, I remember there was a national championship basketball game between North Carolina with guys like Jordan and James Worthy and and Georgetown Hoyas. It was 1982. I was in my parents' house. I was watching this game, and a freshman kid named Michael Jordan had just hit a 17-foot shot to take the lead 63-62. to Some of you guys remember this, right? And there was 16 seconds left, and Georgetown called a timeout. They inbounded the ball to a guy named Fred Brown, a 6-foot-5 power forward, shooting guard. He could play it all. And Fred Fred Brown gets the ball, crosses the timeline, and evidently something something was wrong with his peripheral vision. And he passes the ball with just seconds left. They got a chance to shoot and win the game, and he passes the ball to James Worthy of the other team, North Carolina. And when he passed the ball, he lost the game. It wasn't even a shot. It wasn't a noble attempt. It wasn't one of those that, oh, you missed the shot. You're my bro. You're my teammate. He passed the ball to the wrong guy. And you can imagine he collapsed. Carolina celebrates the confetti's falling from the roof. And later you see Georgetown Hoya basketball coach, John Thompson, come over to this young man, Fred Brown, who had a towel over his head. And he comes up, and men, sometimes, you know, you just got to hug. You got to go big with the hug. Do you know that? And John Thompson, a giant man, comes up to six foot five Fred Brown and gives him a big manly hug. And he whispers to him, you are my guy. I love you. You are a great basketball player. Incidentally, two years later, a lot of guys don't recover from that. You know that, right? Two years later, Fred Brown and some other guys won the national championship in 1984 for Georgetown. And I I think of that when I think of Jesus and Peter and God and David. And for what some of you need, your God, your God is able to forgive you for what you think is unforgivable, for where you're beating yourself up, for where you're dealing with condemnation. He's able to put you back in the game. Don't you want to be in the game? Don't you want to learn your usefulness? Don't you want God to stir your affections for Jesus in a greater way and to seek him and to be used by him? Now, when it comes to prayer, I want to quickly just say a couple of things. And in saying it, I want to just say that today, January 11th, is our wedding anniversary. Um, 18 years ago today, Susan and I married. She's looking down at her phone. But uh, it's true that we married 18 years ago today. See if she tweeted something right now. Just check Twitter right now if you follow Susan. Yeah, she's taking notes. 18 years ago, we married, and here's what we've learned. We've learned that every day you got to work on it, right? Y'all know she does, right? Every day she's got to work on it. But 18 years ago today, January 11th, 1997, at Ascension Lutheran Church in Rancho Palos Verdes, California, we stood there and took each other as husband and wives. And our marriage is far from perfect because we're two sinful people colliding. But when our marriage has been good and vibrant, we have done both daily conversations because you kind of have to, right? And then we've also done what some call a date night. Just a time for a man and woman to to pull away and to, to, to really get in sync with each other. Now, pretend with me 
if on it, and by the way, on those daily times, Susan, she's learned through the years that she would ask me, Robert, how's your day? And what would I give her, guys? Just say it. Good, fine, busy. It was all right, right? And then she learned the key is to get my calendar. She'd get, she'd get my schedule. She learned this a couple years in a marriage. How was your lunch with so-and-so? How did that meeting go with such-and-such? Then I would be more specific because she was, right? Because she got to know me better. She got away from my monosyllable stuff to real answers. But pretend with me for a moment, real quickly, pretend that Susan were to say, hey, how was your lunch with so-and-so? And I would say to her, hey, get back with me on date night, right? Let's talk about that when we go out next weekend. I got your book, baby, okay? Not now, but later. That wouldn't go over well, would it? That wouldn't go over well, nor would it go over well if you didn't have those times that you really pull away and get in sync. And I'm saying to you, church, surely it's not a stretch for you to understand that your relationship with God as you seek him in prayer will grow with greater vibrancy if you have both ongoing, active, through-the-day conversations about everything big and small, but you also have that time that you set aside just for him. I believe it's important. This year I'm doing a few things differently in my life. I like to think that they are not just New Year's resolutions, but commitments renewed and fresh to God. The first thing that I did involved some brothers in this room. One's on the front row, a few around the room, but our elders gathered to be together, to share life. And honestly, it's my fault. We didn't do as much praying as I'd like, but we prayed for our year. We came around a couple of guys who were transitioning this year in their vocations, and we laid our hands on them and prayed for them. And I believe that whatever God wants to accomplish in our lives this year will at least in some part be because we started our year in a cabin in the woods seeking God. Another thing that I'm doing because of John 3.16 and God's love for us that I want people to know and find and experiment. Every day at 3.16, I have an alarm that goes off on my phone And I'll pray to God, thanking him for his love. And I do something specific with that. At 316, some of you will, you'll receive this, but I will text a friend and let them know in that moment that I'm praying for them and that they would experience God's love. And I feel like as a church, we have kind of come to a a place where um, our giftedness is limited, where we really need God. We need God to be a deliverer in some ways. We need God to be a provider as we've taken on this building. We need God to to do a work and to stir some things among us. And I'm praying that we would really be a people of prayer. In a moment, Susan and Gary and maybe some others are going to stand down here as we do often. And we're going to face you as you gather, as you stand to pray and sing. And we, we want this time to be useful. Uh, whether you're a commander of armies or a really important person, uh, maybe you haven't humbled yourself to dip in the River Jordan to do things God's way and to seek him humbly so that God could bring healing in your life, you know, we can all fold our arms and say, that's the way it is. Or we could use this time as a time of prayer. And you know what's beautiful? When one of you comes forward, sometimes somebody else comes forward. And if only a few come forward, what a picture that is. 
That just in a moment as we're singing, as you're praying and you're glancing down, you're judging people, right? Thinking what is their sin and what are they being prayed for, right? Because that's how you are. You're sick and dark, right? But you're, you, you pray and you see and it's sort of a testimony. We don't ever want it to be for show, but it's a testimony that we want this place to be a place of prayer. And some of you need it today. You know this. And through the influence and my friendship with Larry Johnson and other guys here, we want to be available to live out James 5.16. That when you need a prayer of healing, that you would call the elders. This isn't a Jedi council. The oil's not special. It just says it in the Bible. It's a symbolism. And we take this symbol and put some oil on your forehead and pray for needs in your life. And we have seen miracles in our church because of a great God, not because of any great leaders. We're praying for the health of families and babies. And there's Tyler and Donna on the front row rejoicing, yet also seeking God for the continued health and the little heart of that little girl, Parker. We're praying. We want to be a praying church. And I want to ask you, would you join with me this year that God would do a work? Listen, the key phrase is that only he can do. Y'all, our God is able. Would you say it with me? Our God is able. Would you say it with me one more time a little bit louder? Our God is able. God, we pray that you receive uh, in these moments both our offering of tithes and offerings back to you and prayers that go to the throne. And God, I thank you I thank you that you want to do a work. And even though we don't know what it is, Lord, this prayer in Ephesians 3 is so beautiful. And as you, as you impressed it on me this week, God, that you're saying that we, that God, that you will, you're able to do all that we ask. And not only all that we ask, but all that we ask or imagine. And not just all that we ask or imagine, but more than we ask or imagine. And not just more than we ask or imagine. Paul said it, God, you're, you want to do immeasurably more than all that we ask or imagine. Only you know what you can do amongst your people. And God, I pray as Jesus prayed that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. And Lord, we're all living in the same world, though our lives are different. And we turn on the TV and we see terrorist attacks and school shootings and amber alerts. And we need your kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. Give us deep and abiding prayers as a Fondren church that we would seek you and for your kingdom to come. And Lord, move us away from some of our own smallness into the grandeur of a great God who wants to use this church family in you we pray. Amen. Would you stand for a few moments? Lord, if any of you uh, need to be prayed for, uh, would you come today? Would you come today to be prayed for? And we'll give this time to our God.